Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will, cease, nor will it cease from yielding fruit. God's divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue that by which he has given us exceedingly great and magnificent promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we begin our study this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We will... Uh, I'll give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, spiritually prepared, so that God the Holy Spirit can use what we study this evening uh, in your spiritual life. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we are reminded that there is no hope, there is no real meaning in life other than On the basis of a relationship with you, there's no real understanding of the details of life and the issues of life other than being informed by your word, and it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, your word from Genesis 1 to Revelation is all about understanding your plans, your purposes, understanding who we are as members of the human race and our role, our destiny, and understanding who you are. And that as creatures, we were created to serve you and to glorify you. And so, Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Revelation, that we might be strengthened and encouraged as we come to understand more of the details related to what will take place when the Lord Jesus Christ finally returns and establishes his kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And you've been waiting for it for a while, but tonight the Lord's going to come back. And those who didn't make it here tonight, well, I guess they're left behind, right? (laughs) Revelation chapter 19 focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ coming and destroying the uh, defeating the cosmic system, which is the devil system that he has used to rule over the human race ever since the fall of Adam. It has its crystallized form in Babylon, both as a thought system that comes out of the rebellion of Nimrod that's described in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, antagonism to God. All of this is part of the thinking of the cosmic system, antagonism to God and arrogance. And this comes to its final, most horrible form, most tyrannical form in the kingdom of the Antichrist, and it is 
depicted as being centered in the uh, rebuilt Babylon in the end times. Also, this Babylon of the end times has a tremendous economic uh, influence over the world, and because of that economic influence, the money leads to, as it so often does, to really spiritual slavery. Uh, Paul said to Timothy that the root that money is the root, the love of money is the root of all evil. It is not money. It's not material things. It is that influence where we put too much influence on material things and the uh, love of money, which Paul also defines in Colossians 3 as idolatry, that it is that greed, that materialism lust, that money lust, that is just another form of materialism. And so man seeks to establish his own security, his own prosperity, his his own destiny through economics and that gets that too is uh depicted depicted and centered in this resurrected babylon the end times and one thing that's interesting that i didn't point out when we were going through revelation chapter 18 and i that is i think is interesting as i've been hearing different things and reading along some other lines up until the last 30 or 40 years lebanon was really the banking center of the of the Middle East. And there's been attempts recently in the last 10 years or 20 years to make Dubai uh, the replacement for that. And now there's been pretty much a collapse of the real estate market in Dubai. But you see, I think that's the kind of thing that's going to eventually push to rebuild Babylon, maybe something coming out of uh, the current uh, resurrection of Iraq, um, who knows whether uh, the U.S. will pull out or not. I just find it fascinating that we're there because of these end-time prophecies. But I think that may be how it starts is a rebuilding of Babylon as an economic center for the Middle East, just as uh, we've seen these other centers uh, in, in uh, recent history. So it's not uh, completely outside of of all uh, reason to think that Babylon can be can be rebuilt. I also had an interesting email from uh, Doug Sanders the other day, and apparently on the uh, the sort of UFO fringe element that is out there, uh, they believe that there's going to be the this sort of infusion uh, uh, in of I guess extraterrestrial beings or whatever, and they're going to end up at Babylon. So it's interesting how even the uh, sort of the irrational fringe, you might say, that's out there, also, and New Agers used to come up with, you know, come up with things similar to this. So uh, it's it's not completely outside of the realm of uh, of possibility that Babylon is and will be rebuilt, as the scripture says. So we see the destruction of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. The first ten verses of Revelation chapter 19, the scene shifted to heaven. And in those verses, we saw the four alleluias plus one praise our God, where the emphasis is on praising God, first because of the destruction of Babylon in the first two verses. Uh, that is echoed by the 24 elders and the four living creatures in verse 4, and then uh, verses 5 and 
5, 6, and 7, there is uh, hallelujah and praise for God because of the anticipation, because of the marriage of the Lamb and the anticipation of the wedding supper, which comes after the establishment of the kingdom. And we ended with that uh, last time. In the order of events, the marriage occurs between the bride of Christ, the church, and Christ in heaven during the tribulation period. The bride, the church, is purified, the judgment seat of Christ. She receives her new clothing depicted as uh, white, uh, pure linen, and then uh, the Lord Jesus Christ returns, uh, destroys uh, Satan, destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, the false prophet and the Antichrist are cast directly into the lake of fire. Uh, Satan is going to be bound in uh, uh, the abyss for a thousand years, and the Lord will establish his kingdom on the earth. All of this comes uh, to fruition by the end of this chapter. And in verses 11 down through uh, 16, we see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and really only six verses are given to that. So to flesh out, as it were, all of the details, we really have to look at a number of other passages in the Old Testament in order to pull all of that together. The Lord Jesus Christ begins to descend from heaven in verse 11. John writes, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Continues with the description in verses 12 and 13, but 12 and 13 give more of a physical description, whereas verse 11 focuses on uh, more of a character description in terms of his qualification to be the one who judges and makes war in righteousness. He is going to return on a white horse. Now, if you remember, when we looked at Revelation 6, verse 1, the first seal judgment, a rider goes forth conquering and to conquer, and he's riding a white horse. This is, view, this is the Antichrist who is acting as a substitute or a pseudo-Messiah. So he is riding a white horse, but he is just acting like the... Uh, like the Messiah. The, uh, this is not the same white horse or the same rider as the first of the seal judgments, although there have been the uh, an, one or two odd uh, individuals who have taken that particular uh, view that the first seal judgment, uh, the one on the white horse, is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same kind of thing that we see depicted in Revelation uh, chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, we see this description of the Lord Jesus Christ. As John is on the Isle of Patmos, he writes that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and suddenly he heard a booming voice. And in verse 12, he says, I turned, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, a complete uh, uh, floor-length uh, white garment, uh, garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and his hair 
white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes a flame of fire. And so that is, that the white hair, uh, the eyes like a flame of fire, and then the description goes on to talk about his legs like burnished bronze coming out of the fire. It's very white and bright. And the whole picture is of purification and an emphasis that he is righteous and holy. It is a physical picture of the kind of statement that John made in First John 1, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It, it emphasizes the fact that he is uh, perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. And so from the very beginning of Revelation to the end, we see this depiction of Jesus as the righteous and true judge. And this is what is described by his character when we look at uh, verse 11 and the title that is given to him, that he who sat on, on it was called Faithful and True. This is his title. The word faithful is the Greek word pistos, O-S, not pistis, which is the word usually to for the act of believing. This is more the idea of being trustworthy or faithful, he is true to his word, and he is now coming to execute justice upon the earth. He is faithful and he is true. This is the Greek word alethanos, genuine, real, true, or trustworthy, and this word emphasizes that he is uh, absolute truth. These two concepts, faithful and true, are very closely related in uh, the word that is used in Hebrew uh, to describe these con- uh, concepts. It's the word we get where, where, where we get our word uh, um, aman, am, amen, amen, and the Hebrew word aman, depending on context and other factors, can indicate that which is stable, that which is rock solid. Uh, it is used at one point in Chronicles to refer to the foundation stone of the doorposts of the temple, indicating that which is immovable. And so in that sense, it has that idea of faithfulness. And in other contexts, it has the idea of being true. These are very closely related ideas. And so this is uh, said of the one who sits on the on the white horse. This focuses our our. Uh, thinking upon his integrity because he is one who has perfect integrity, perfect holiness. He is qualified to judge. That's the point that Jesus makes back in John 5 when he says that all judgment is going to be given to him uh, by the Father. And then in the last statement, in it, the verse states that in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the Greek uses a prepositional phrase there for in righteousness, using the Greek preposition in, E-N, plus the dative, which frequently has an instrumental idea, not in righteousness in terms of a locative idea or location or place, something of that nature, but by means of righteousness he judges, and by means of righteousness he makes war. And so righteousness is going to characterize his judgment of all mankind and the war that he brings against the earth dwellers and the kings of the earth and the Antichrist and the false prophet and the dragon and the fallen angels, all of these are the enemies that he is going to face when he returns at the 
at the second coming. Now, what's interesting is when he returns at the second coming, he is going to be uh, fighting, and he alone is going to be the one to fight. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 goes on to describe him in the same way that he was described in, in Revelation 1.14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Same idea that you had in Revelation 1.14. And on his head were many crowns. Now he's depicted as a ruler. In Revelation 1, he's at 1, 12 through 13 with the garment that it goes down to his feet and the uh, golden band around his chest. That depicted him more as a priest judge. He has not been crowned yet. He has not received the kingdom. Remember, in Daniel chapter 7, we've gone through this a lot, so I don't want to take the time right now to go back and look at Daniel 7, that in Daniel chapter 7, it is the Son of Man who comes before the Ancient of Days and is given the kingdom, and then it is the Son of Man who comes to establish his kingdom. So the Lord isn't given his kingdom until the end of the tribulation period. That's part of what's involved in the seal judgments. He's given the scroll. It's the title deed, as it were, to the planet. And first he has to judge the planet, and so there is the opening of the of the seven seals, and with the seventh seal, we have the return of the Lord Jesus Christ now as king to establish his kingdom. So he is depicted as having many crowns. He is the sovereign ruler. He is going to, and the the passage begins with this first description that he has many crowns, and it ends with the statement that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so those those two bracket this description of his return, emphasizing uh, his sovereignty. So on the his eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. So he is the one now who has the right to establish his rule upon the earth. And then the next statement says he had a name written uh, that no one knew except himself. And this, in the idea of naming in uh, Hebrew culture and in the Bible has the idea of describing character. So this shows that there's some aspect of his character related to what will happen when he returns that is something we're going to learn that is new, this this name that has not yet uh, been revealed. Now, going back to that initial phrase, his eyes were like a flame of fire, this phrase always emphasizes the knowledge of God. It is through our eyes that we see things, that we learn things, and that we assimilate things. And so eyes are often used in Scripture to depict the omniscience of God so that his eyes are like a flame of fire indicates his piercing vision into all aspect of human culture and human history. He sees everything. He knows everything. And the flame of fire indicates that it is a purifying judgment. We see this imagery of the eyes of the Lord in several um parallel passages in the Old Testament. For example, Second Chronicles 16.9 states that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart 
is loyal to him. So the eyes of the Lord are related to his observing human behavior and his omniscience, his knowledge of everything that is going on in human history. This is uh, also stated by Solomon in Proverbs uh, 5.21, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. So this shows that God is, again, is completely aware of all human thought, all human activity, all human plans, and nothing escapes uh, his observation. And then in a passage that connects uh, the eyes of the Lord to the final judgment, we have Amos chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. So this shows the contrast between the sinful kingdom, meaning the kingdom of man, the kingdom of Babylon ultimately, and uh, Israel, that Israel will be preserved, to the remnant will be preserved, the remnant will survive, and um, and yet the kingdom of man will be destroyed. So again, we have the focus of the eyes of the Lord as a basis for uh, judgment. Then we have, I may have uh, skipped a slide here, verse... Um, See if I have a verse 14. The armies in heaven clothed in fine white linen, white and clean, follow him on, a, on white horses. So not only is the Lord riding a white horse, but those in the armies coming with him, the armies plural, are on white horses. Horses. Now, at the very least, this implies that there are some, at least some animals in heaven. There's always uh, somebody who wants to know what happens to our pets when uh, they die. Do they go to heaven? And I'm not sure, except I know that God is trustworthy and he is going to uh, do the right thing. And uh, we can trust him with the lives of our uh, beloved pets. One of the toughest questions I ever got asked was years ago when I was just still a, a, a rookie pastor and I was uh, substituting for uh, Jim Klubnick on the uh, pastor question and answer program on Thursday nights. And uh, some young boy called in and you could just hear him hold holding back the tears and the catch in his throat and he wanted to know what happened when uh, your 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 dog died did he go to heaven that was the toughest qu- question i ever had to answer i think you know that, there's others that are that are tough and you have to work through problems but that's a tough one because we're just not sure, but we know that we can trust the Lord with uh, whatever the situation is, and we know that there are going to be animals in heaven, and we just don't know anything more than that, but God is completely uh, trustworthy with whatever the situation might be. So we're told here that there are two armies at least that are going to be coming uh, with the Lord when he returns. They're clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and the use of the word linen here. Uh, takes us back to a couple of other passages 
that we see in the um, uh, in the old are uh, in the New Testament that have emphasized this in in the uh, letters to the seven churches that those who are overcomers will be clothed in white linen. So this is at, referring to the church, the resurrected, rewarded uh, church, as the uh, bride of Christ will be accompanying him, as well as an army of angels. Uh, Matthew. Uh, 16.27 states, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, then he will reward each according to his works. Now, the phrase rewarding each according to his works is referring to the judgment that comes on uh, the nations at the and believers in the nations, the Gentiles, at the end of the tribulation period. This is not talking about the judgment seat of Christ, but that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will be accompanied by his angels. Then we have another interesting passage in Jude, verses 14 and 15. Jude only has one chapter, so it's not Jude 1, 14 or Jude 1, 15, although in order for computers to understand that, they've had to insert... Uh, the chapters for uh, books like Second John and Third John and Jude, because computers can't understand why those books don't have a number in front of the verse. So uh, they've come along with a chapter for these single chapter books. But here we have one of the most unusual references to a non-canonical reference to the book of Enoch. Now Enoch lived before the flood, and Enoch. Uh, obviously knew the Lord very well, walked with the Lord as we studied in our study series on Hebrews uh, 11 on, on Thursday nights. But here we read, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. So there is a non-canonical book that is attributed to Enoch because part of it, one statement in it, is quoted by the writer of Scripture does not mean that the book of Enoch is to be considered canonical or inspired or anything of that nature. It is just like any other book that is written outside of the Bible and uh, without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there can be truth in it, and so there is some truth in it, and uh, this is quoted by Jude. And he references this statement in the book of Enoch, that is comes actually from First uh, Enoch one nine. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, "Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him." And so this is just a reference to the fact that when the Lord returns, his saints or holy ones will be with him. So there is an army of church-age believers, the bride of Christ accompanying him, and an army of angels that will accompany him. But the Lord is not going to use them to bring about the, the defeat. Now, to reference that, I want you to just hold your place there in Revelation 19. And we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 63. We'll be going back to Isaiah 63 a couple of times. 
And in Isaiah 63, 3, the one who comes up from Basra with his garment stained in blood, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, says, I have trodden the winepress alone. So he's the only one who's going to be engaged in the battle, and he's the only one who is going to be uh, taking out the uh, demons and the unbelievers, the earth dwellers, and we're going to be there as witnesses and as the cheering section. So, Revelation 1, I mean, Revelation 8, uh, 19, uh, emphasizes that he is coming back to judge uh, with his armies. Now, I think I skipped a verse there, didn't I? I thought I didn't have one in the slide. That was verse 13. Now, verse 13 says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, that is a reference to the first part of Isaiah 63, which, we were just, which I just referenced in verse 3. The first part of Isaiah 63 is who is, states, Who is this who comes from Edom? That is in the southeastern uh, part of Israel, and then across the, um, to the east of where the Jordan would run, um, you have the uh, you have a, a modern Jordan, which is where Basra is located down near Petra. Uh, who is this who comes from Eden with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So the Lord is. It emphasizes righteousness and deliverance again. Don't understand saved there as uh, receiving eternal life. Think of saved there in terms of physical deliverance, which is one of its uh, primary meanings. The Lord comes to Basra to rescue the remnant of Israel, and then he is going to lead them, Scripture says, with Judah out, the tribe of Judah out in front, just as when they entered the promised land, just as when they marched, uh, through the uh, wilderness, during the 40 years in the wilderness, Judah will be, the tribe of Judah will be out front, and he will lead them from Basra to uh, Jerusalem. Verse 2, the question is asked, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And remember we've seen in Revelation 17 and 18, uh, back to Revelation 15, the imagery of the treading of the grapes in the winepress as a uh, very vivid visual image of the judgment, the horrors of all of the bloodshed and violence that will occur in the destruction leading up to and including the whole Armageddon campaign. And so this reference in Revelation 19.13 picks up on these other uh, allusions back in uh, Isaiah chapter 63. His uh, robe will be covered in blood, blood splattered from his defeat of the, some of the armies of the Antichrist down in the area of Basra. And then we read, and his name is called the Word of God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the title for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God or the uh, incarnation and revelation of God. So the armies then, verse 14, deals with the two armies that are associated with him, the army of angels and the army of the church. And then we come to uh, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a uh, sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, there are three elements in verse 15, and I've tried to break them out a little bit, as we see that refer to um, different aspects of what is going on here. The first statement is, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Now, this is not the Machaerus sword, which is the uh, short sword that the Roman uh, soldiers carried with them that was both a defensive and an offensive weapon, a weapon that was used in uh, close quarters combat. This was a rompia, which was a long, broad sword. And this is not the first time that we've seen a reference to a rompia in the in Revelation. Back in the description of the Lord Jesus Christ when he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, we read in Revelation 1.16 that he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So again, the, that, that continued that picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of purity, in terms of brightness, in terms of light. Uh, the seven stars, as you learn in verse 18, the seven stars of the seven churches, uh, the seven angels of the seven churches. And out of his mouth comes this sharp uh, two-edged sword, and that is used for bringing about judgment. It is a uh, mighty military weapon to bring judgment upon those who are uh, in disobedience. This is referred to again in Revelation 2.12 in the letter to the church of Pergamum. Uh, the Lord is introduced there as he was in the beginning of each of those letters by a reference to some aspect of the vis- his, his appearance to John in chapter 1. And in the letter to the church of Pergamus, the emphasis is on their, their disobedience and on the Lord's discipline on that church if they don't straighten up or repent and, uh, and change. And in, in uh, verse 12, the statement is made, these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, and then this is repeated at the conclusion of that um, short uh, rebuke in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them, that is, those who were disobedient within the congregation, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So this rompia sword is a sword that is used in judgment, emphasizing the judgment of God upon upon his enemies. So the first part of verse 15 states, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, a rompia, that with it he should strike the nations. And he, and that 
mention of striking the nation leads naturally into the next phrase, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, that phrase, rod of iron, comes right out of Psalm 2. The imagery of him coming to do war against the nations also comes right out of Psalm 2. And so we ought to do a brief review of Psalm 2. Just make a note here next to uh, Revelation uh, 19.15 in your Bibles where you have that phrase, rod of iron. You make a note that you, so you can reference Psalm uh, Psalm 2. Turn with me. Keep your place there in Revelation. We're going to, uh, we'll go back and forth to a couple of other passages before we're done this evening, I think. But Revel, uh, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted and most significant Psalms that we find, uh, from, from the Old Testament in terms of its use in the New Testament. And the, the Psalm itself is a prophecy. It is looking forward to the time of the Battle of Armageddon and the events that led up to it. And so David writes this in anticipation of the war between God and his anointed, the Messiah, and the kings of the nations. And so the question is asked at the beginning, why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The idea of vanity is something that is uh, is like smoke. It's like uh, when you get up early in the morning like this morning and it's uh, uh, about 28 degrees outside and you go outside and you breathe and you see the air, uh, your breath coming out of your mouth and you see that vapor for just a second and it disappears. That's the Hebrew idea of vanity, something that just has no, uh, something that doesn't last, has no significance. Uh, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, where have we seen that phrase? The kings of the earth, representing the leaders of all the nations of the earth, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So they have established themselves and they are seeking counsel, plotting. Uh, they are involved in some uh, conspiracy to overthrow the rule of God. So the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, the capital L-O-R-D, always stands for Yahweh, God the Father in this passage, and against his anointed. There we have the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah. Uh, they have, they are fighting, they are in rebellion against God the Father and God the Son, and this is what they are, uh, what they are saying. They say, uh, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords, uh, from us. I don't know where that you got in there, some sort of typo. Uh, verse 3 says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is the mindset of man in rebellion against God. He sees God's authority as simply something that is restrictive. It's something that keeps him from doing what he wants to do. He sees the uh, control of God, the authority of God, as something that is just uh, preventing him from really enjoying life 
and and having all the pleasure that he wants to have or trying to gain all the power that he wants to gain. And so man is set against God. And what they say is, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us, a statement of their desire to uh, slip away, slip out from under the authority of God. But what's God's response? God sits in the heavens and laughs in derision. He is just bold. He's got a great sense of humor in these puny. It, it would be like one of us standing over an ant bed and these little bitty ants saying, well, look at that person standing over us. We're going to rebel against him, and, and we're, he has no real power over us, and then we just reach out with our shoe and squash him uh, on the sidewalk. Uh, that's the idea here. That's the picture. God just laughs at them. The Lord holds them in derision. He has no respect for them because of their uh, rebellion against him and because of their uh, negative volition. Verse 5, then he shall speak to them in his wrath. Then finally God comes and speaks in judgment. That word wrath speaks of his divine judgment finally in the tribulation period. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And this is what God says. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is the temple mount in Jerusalem, and he is going to establish his king, the anointed one, on Zion's hill in Jerusalem. And then he will repeat a decree. We've studied this in the past. I will declare the decree. This isn't the first statement of the decree, but this is a, a, a public proclamation of a previously established decree where the Lord has, and this is the Son speaking, I will declare the decree, the Lord said to me. See, if this was the Father speaking, that wouldn't make much sense for the Father to say, the Lord said to me. You are my son. So the one that when it says the Lord said to me, that's got to be the father. Uh, I, therefore, in this sense, is the son speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, this is in the past, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this isn't referring to the birth of Messiah. This is referring to the uh, Lord in eternity past making a decision related to the role and destiny of the second person of the Trinity. You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And so it is at this point when the son is coming back that the father says to the son to ask for the nations as his inheritance. This connects to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, the Son of Man, comes to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and is given the kingdom at that point, just at the end of the tribulation. So the, the Son is not the king yet. And we have all kinds of hymns and modern choruses that get that all wrong. The Son is not functioning as the king yet. He doesn't function at the king he, as the king. He doesn't receive the kingdom until the end of the tribulation period. The father says to him, ask, and I will give it to you. Daniel 7, the son of man, asks the father, and the father gives it to him, and then he returns to the earth 
and establishes his kingdom. Think about it this way. The, the picture that we have historically in the Old Testament to communicate this is the picture of David and Saul. Saul is anointed the king of Israel, and Saul reigns for 40 years. But somewhere along about 15 years before his 40 years are up, he has become been so disobedient and so rebellious towards God that God says he's going to take the kingdom from him. Doesn't hasn't happened yet. And he's going to give it to someone else. Saul, even though he's a believer, is a type of Satan at this point. And uh, God is going to give the kingdom to his his ruler. But Saul continues to reign for approximately another 15 years or so until it is time for David to become the king. Now, at that point... When God told Saul that he was going to take the kingdom from him, he sent, God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse, and at that point Samuel anointed David to be the king. But was David the king? No. Was David called the king? No. David was still uh, taking care of the sheep, and nobody really knew what he was doing or knew much about him until the Goliath episode occurred. And after he killed Goliath, he apparently went back into obscurity for a while. But he's not called the king. And then what happens? And then Saul rewards him. Saul brings him uh, in, into the palace, and and he goes through a period where he's a warrior. He defeats the Philistines, and then Saul would get uh, become very paranoid, and he would chase David and try to kill David. And you go through this period uh, where David's in and out, in and out for a period of of, of um, ten years or so before there's finally the Battle of Gilboa, when uh, Saul and Jonathan are killed. And it is only at that point that David becomes actually the king and is called the king. But he's never called the king in that interim period between his anointing and the crowning. And that's what the same thing is true about Jesus. He is sent to the earth. He, you have the inauguration, you might say, or the uh, announcement of his presence, an announcement offer of the kingdom during the uh, period when he is uh, on the earth, during the period of the incarnation, but then he is rejected. And during that period of his rejection, the church is like uh, David out in the wilderness and the, his uh, mighty men, and they are on the outs, and it is not until the king uh, of the earth at this time, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, not until he is defeated, and destroyed that Jesus then takes, uh, has the crown and becomes the king. So a lot of people get confused and a lot of people are subject to bad theology that they learn by hearing a lot of music that talks about Jesus now as, uh, as the king and talking about king, king Jesus in the present tense. This doesn't happen until, uh, as verse Eight says, until the Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you, future tense, I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And then what does he do? Verse 9, you shall break them with, and there's our phrase, you will break them with a rod of iron. 
So that phrase, rod of iron, is a key phrase for understanding the role of the Lord Jesus Christ when he establishes his reign over the nations, uh, Psalm 2.9. You uh, shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, here is a slide that gives you a little bit of a timeline. Uh, the today original declaration is at some point in the past. And then we have a period of asking the interval between the first advent and the second advent. And then we have the installation of the king, which occurs at, at, at the end of the tribulation period when the Lord Jesus Christ is given the nations and he rules over the nations with a rod of iron. And then there is, at the next three verses in the psalm, instruction to the human race. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. David is now taking a present application in light of their future destiny. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And so Psalm 2 comes to fulfillment at the end of the tribulation period when the Lord returns and establishes his reign with a rod of iron. Now turn back to Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And this, again, picks up that same imagery that we saw in Isaiah chapter uh, 63. Isaiah chapter 63, as you see the Lord coming up from Basra. Let me read that to you again. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, uh, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is your, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? And then the, the, this person responds, verse in Isaiah 63, 3, I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. He is alone. He's going to fight the war alone. He will establish his own kingdom. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. This is a term of divine, the execution of divine just judgment upon man. We've studied the fact that vengeance in the Bible isn't this sort of personal vendetta idea that creatures often have but it is the idea of God bringing about just retribution for sin. Uh, the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Well, when is that? That's when the Lord comes back at the second coming. It can't be at any other time. So this passage in Isaiah 63 has to be speaking about the return of the Lord at the end of the tribulation period when he redeems uh, the remnant of Israel rescues them at Basra and establishes his kingdom. 
Isaiah 63, 5 goes on to say, I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. See, that's the same imagery that you have with the kings of the earth and rulers of the earth raging against the Lord and his anointed in Psalm 2. But it never stops with just the justice of God. The scripture always goes on to speak of the grace of God. And Isaiah 63, 7 says, I will mention the loving kindness, that it's his faithful, loyal love, that Hebrew word chesed, the loyal love of the Lord, and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which is bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, uh, children who will not lie. So he becomes their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted, referring back to the cross. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them uh, in the days of old. Now it relates all of this back to how he had redeemed them at the time of the Exodus. So the point of Isaiah 63 is to reflect upon the Lord's goodness in rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt and then connecting that to what he will do when he rescues and delivers the remnant from their, where they have fled after the abomination of desolation, the midpoint of the tribulation, when they have fled down into the hills, into the wilderness, and across, uh, the, across to, uh, the area around Petra and Basra in, in modern Jordan today. And then in verse 16 we read, and he has on his robe and on his thigh, a name written. This indicates that this pictures him in terms of his role and who he is, uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the first time we see the Lord depicted as the reigning king in the Scripture. It doesn't occur before this uh, point in time. Now, when he appears, we have a couple of other passages that describe how this appearance will take place. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 30, we read, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then... In Acts one eleven, as the Lord was about to ascend, the uh, disciples uh, were standing there, and they watched him ascend into heaven, and then two uh, angels appeared, and, and they're all standing there with their mouths open, looking at this, this up in the clouds where Jesus had disappeared. And the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner, not the place, but manner, as you saw him go into heaven. He went in the clouds. Clouds in Scripture are often associated with the Shekinah presence of the Lord. And so he ascended in the clouds, and he will uh, return in the clouds, and 
all the earth, when they see him, uh, will mourn. They will grieve. The, those who have, uh, they will grieve because they are lost and their judgment has uh, drawn uh, nigh to them. Now, we're going to stop here because this is a, a good stopping place. We'll come back next time to finish out the chapter in terms of the announcement of the angel to come and clean up the mess of Armageddon in the battle, but we haven't looked at all the details there. This is really sort of skipped over in much of Revelation 19. We don't get a lot of details about uh, about the battle and the carnage and everything that tra- transpires, so we'll need to come back and look at the uh, how the all, all the different details in the final campaign and how the Lord establishes his kingdom and rescues Israel. And what we see starting in verse 17 is really the aftermath of the battle. There is such carnage that an angel calls on the birds from heaven to come and gather together for the great supper of the great God. So all these birds are going to come in order to uh, clean up all the dead bodies uh, that are lying around as a result of the Lord's defeat uh, of the armies. And one thing you always hear about is every now and then you'll read some story about how there seems to be an unusual number of birds gathering in the Middle East. You know, I I just never quite understand this kind of sensationalism with prophecy. Uh, There doesn't have to be a single bird in the northern hemisphere or eastern hemisphere for this to take place because when the battle occurs, uh, the Lord is very capable of calling all of the carrion eaters from the other side of the earth, and they will be there uh, very, very rapidly. So these kinds of things are just uh, things that appeal to people's uh, purient interest, I think, in uh, end times events. So next time we'll come try to start putting things together. I want to look at some other passages, uh, such as Habakkuk chapter 3 as well as passages in uh, Ezekiel, passages in, um, in Daniel, so we can tie all of these uh, end times events together. Amos, uh, passages in uh, a- Amos, uh, in Joel 3, in Amos, uh, Zechariah, and get a full picture of the, uh, of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll do that in about three weeks when I get back from, back from Kiev. Uh, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful again that we can uh, see the destiny of history. We know that uh, you will win, that in the meantime there will still be suffering, there will be adversity, there will be challenges we face in life, and that just because we will be uh, raptured and not present during the great tribulation, nevertheless we will still go through uh, much adversity in this life, and we have no idea whether you will return for us tonight or whether you will just take us home to be with you tonight. And so we always have to live as if each day is our last. We need to put our uh, focus on living for you, not living for ourselves, serving you, and being uh, those who are ever ready to uh, give an answer for the hope that is in us, ever ready to give the gospel to those around us, and that our lives might be a faithful testimony of your love and your grace. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us on a daily basis to apply these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.